Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. My name's Douglas. If you don't know me, you're probably getting an idea of what I'm like by now. <laughs> uh, it is my privilege to stand here. It's an honour. I love being in this house. I love being with you. I love the hunger. There is such a hunger in this house and it is a joy for me to be able to come and be a part of feeding you and encouraging you. And every time I do it, I get encouraged and strengthened. And uh, I can intend to continue that this morning. I want to encourage you in the faith, to see you raised up in the maturity of the faith, to see the love of God that is shed abroad in your heart actually manifest and shed abroad in your soul and in your body and in your families. Because there is nothing like the love of God to transform a person and a community and a family and a society. It is by the power of love. Without love, we're just like noisy symbols and clanging gongs. We can have all the gifts in the world. But we're desperate for the love of God to rule and reign in our hearts and to rule and reign in our communities. So... I mean, continuing picking up from where Brett left off last week in chapter 5. And if you haven't heard Brett's message, he did a great job, particularly of contextualising some of uh, this next section that we're in. So I'm just going to pick up some of the stuff that he uh, delivered last week to give you or reiterate that context. Now, Mark can be divided in a number of different ways. Scholars always have a way of being able to provide various options on how things are structured. But we've had a very fast-paced introduction. Chapters 1 to 3, there's a lot of things happening. And Mark emphasises this with the word immediately. You see it occur time and time again. Interestingly, though, 90% of the uses of those words happen in the first eight chapters. And then it slows right down. But already, it's like the brakes are being put on as we enter into the parables, which we've been through in chapter 4, and now into this series of miracles. What I find interesting myself is that in chapter 3, verse 6, we see the Pharisees reject Jesus and they start to plot to kill him. Despite the miracles, despite the healings, despite the deliverances and despite his preaching, somehow they have turned their hearts toward him in such a way that they are willing to plot to kill him. And then not soon after... Well, not long after, I should say, his family actually think he's gone mad and they reject his authority. Skip along after this next section, we hear the parables of the sower. There's four parables there and then there's four miracles. Not sure if there's a... I've been wondering about that. I'm wondering if Mark was intentional or not about what he was saying there. But then at the end of it, he goes to his hometown, Nazareth. And you know what happens there? They reject him there too. The increasing extraordinary nature of his miracles doesn't actually turn people to Jesus. It divides. People are either fully for him or they reject him. It's very confrontational. And here we see this unfolding. It's, it's characteristic of Mark to have a number of different themes running through, of it, through it. They're dual themes. Things like the most dominant is probably that Jesus is being presented as both the wonder worker and the suffering servant. The one who can calm the storms and heal disease and sickness 
is also the one who goes to the cross and suffers and dies for our sin. Brett was talking last week about this juxtaposition, this decision of, between fear and faith, and it runs throughout the narrative. The people are being confronted constantly. Are they going to put their faith and trust in Jesus, or are they going to be gripped with fear? Are they going to turn against him? There was another one there I was going to mention, but it just slipped my mind. Today, we're going to see another of these dualisms put together. It's clean and unclean. It's another theme. We notice that the spirits are called unclean. Here in the demoniac, there's a, a number of significant things about the region, but uncleanness becomes to the, comes to the fore. We see uncleanness in Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. We see uncleanness in the leper. So there's these dual themes, and here we are in, this, in the midst of it, having just come out of the storm where Jesus stood up and calmed the storm, and we land at the place of the Gerasenes. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to unpack it a little, and we're going to have a look um, at what it reveals about Jesus. And I'm going to go to a place where perhaps some of you haven't considered before. I'm not going to tell you because that can be a surprise. You can hang around and find out. But let's go through this passage first. So anyone who's got your Bible, you can open up to chapter 5, verse 1. We'll have it on the screen also. I will let you know that my version is slightly different to that. So if you're reading here and hearing me, don't be concerned. Just slightly different versions. So chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains. But he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank to the sea and were drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with them. And he did not put him in to go. But said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim him in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Excuse me a moment. 
still recovering from the worship. So here we have Jesus arriving at a place called Gerasenes. There's some debate about the actual title, but it's really insignificant to the story. The, the region itself is called the Decapolis. It's a Gentile region. It's under the, the rule of the Roman Empire. And it sits on the uh, southeast side of the Sea of Galilee. So it's outside. It's just on the other side of the, the borders, essentially, of Israel. And I said to you, this, this theme about unclean and clean emerges quite strongly in this passage because... This place has uncleanness all over it. Jesus gets out of the boat and he's confronted by a man with an unclean spirit. Turns out this man has been dwelling in tombs that are unclean because to a Jew, dead people were unclean. And it's in a territory or a region of Gentiles, and Gentiles were considered unclean, under a, uh, an oppressive force that in their view was unclean. And they also traded in unclean animals, which were pigs. So any Jew in their right mind looking at this would have to wonder, what on earth is Jesus going? What business does he have going there? Because this is not a place in their right mind that they would think they would ever go. And I always find it interesting that the ways in which we think can often be ruined by the ways in which Jesus thinks. He doesn't do what we think is rational or right. So whatever they thought about what the Messiah was going to do for Israel, all of a sudden here is Jesus stepping out of the region of Israel into a Gentile territory. And you can start to see that the gospel that he brings, the kingdom that he preaches, isn't something that's supposed to be restricted or the exclusivity of one particular people or nation or tribe. The kingdom of God is for everyone or for anyone doesn't matter where you come from, what nation you come from, what race, background, pedigree, whatever you think, Jesus is telling you in this story that the kingdom of God is for humanity. And if you read in Romans 5, you discover that it's actually only two races on this planet, those who belong to Adam, the first Adam, and those who are born again and of Christ. There's only two. That was the other uh, jewel, the in and out. <laughs> it's like, thank you. Took a while, but so here is Jesus, really messing with people's established understanding and thinking, and stepping into a region that is just full of uncleanness. But you notice he's not really deterred by it. He wasn't deterred by the storm. He would have slept right through it if it hadn't been for his disciples waking him up and rudely interrupting his sleep. <laughs> He would have just gone carried right on to the other shore and had a good rest and probably would have felt a bit more refreshed arriving dealing with this demoniac. But no, he's dealt with the storm and now he gets off the boat and no sooner as his feet hit the shore than this demon with the unclean spirit confronts him. So that's the introduction. And then in verses 3 to 5, we find that Mark spends quite a bit of time unpacking the state of this poor person. This happens to be the most extended and detailed account of an exorcism in the whole of the Bible. And so Mark has some pretty significant reasons or is, must be wanting to emphasise certain things in order to do that, particularly in such a short gospel. Listen to what he says. He says, He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, 
For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. It mentions chains and shackles about almost a half a dozen times. I mean, this man is so tormented that nothing can bind him. And there's a, you know, this passage is also packed with irony because isn't it funny that this man who's so bound and tormented finds that the only solution people have for him is to try and bind him with chains. That the bound one is, is to be bound even further because they can't do anything else with him. And such is the strength, though, that it has no... It, 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 they fail in every attempt and no one has the strength to subdue him. No one has the strength to subdue him. This is echoing back to uh, John 3, 30... Uh, sorry, John, uh, chapter 3 and Mark, um, where Jesus is being told that he is doing things under the power of Beelzebub, and then he turns around and says, if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods. In other words, no one can be set free from the oppressive torment of Satan's rule unless they first bind the strong man. So the human attempt here to deal with the demonic has utterly failed And the only thing they are left to do is cast him out of their territory, out of their city, and to send him up into the place of the dead. So this poor man, this tormented, wretched man, who's been so dehumanised, is now relegated to live among the dead. And you can hear it. It is night and day among the tombs and on the mountains. He was crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is perhaps one of the most wretched depictions of a tormented soul. It's anathema to us often to think that we are in a spiritual war. But that's because of our Western rational heritage, from the Enlightenment. We have utterly rejected the idea that we are more than just biological beings. Yet here in the Gospel of Mark, we find ourselves confronted time and again that the war is not a war of flesh and blood, but it is of principalities and powers. And that the ultimate intent and the function of this possession of this man is to destroy the divine image of God on humanity. Can you see that? That all the destruction that takes place, me, there is a force and a malevolence behind all human dehumanisation to destroy that which is supposed to bear the image of God what you and I were destined for. So here is this man in torment. Who knows for how long? And then in verse 6 it says, and when, Jesus, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. Now this is the second time that Mark brings up this idea of this demon running before him. And I find it fascinating because it actually says this time that he saw Jesus from afar. Well, that's interesting because if you're up on a mountain looking at a lake and you imagine a bunch of people on a boat, you're not going to see anything at night, are you? So what did this demoniac see? He's obviously got eyes to see something. I know one commentator talks about how far the, power, the powerful presence of Jesus could be seen. And I just let my imagination run a little wild here for a moment because I couldn't get past this for a little bit. I just thought this is really fascinating. Here's this guy, demon-possessed, up on a mountain, 
And we learn later that it is actually not the man himself who's controlling his functions. It's the demoniac. So the demoniac is sitting up there and there's storm brooding over the, the Sea of Galilee. And the kingdom of Satan is often... or has been regarded as thought of as also the kingdom of darkness. So there I am thinking, if I could put my spiritual lenses on, here's Jesus on a boat, floating across, storm brewing, he's asleep. I just imagine like the thunder clouds of a storm, where it's really dark, just brooding in the spiritual realm, and it's whipping up this storm, whipping up this storm. And in the midst of that darkness, all of a sudden, if you were looking from the mountain across to the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stands up. He opens his mouth and he says, peace, be still and boof. The whole lake just goes flat. The winds stop and everything just becomes calm. And I imagine just right then being taken back to Genesis 1-2 where it says in the Hebrew that God said, light be and boom, light went out through the universe and dispelled this darkness with such a power and force that it continues to go out even to this day. And here Jesus, when he opens his mouth, I imagine this demoniac standing on the mountain, he hears that word and he sees this sound wave come across the lake and boom, hit him and all of a sudden the terror of the Lord is is inside of him and he knows who's coming to his shores. And so this demoniac suddenly makes a beeline down to the shore because he says, I don't want that person stepping on my territory. And in the terror of his, and the threat to his own region, he wants to meet him before Jesus can put land on his foot on his land because he knows as soon as that happens, it's all over. Notice how he's not even out of the boat and the demoniac's right there. He's terrified. And then it says he fell down. Well, in the Greek, there's this word called proskuneu. It's the same word that we often see translated as worship. But physically, the physical representation of it is a man or woman face down. I'm not going to lay on the stage. (laughs) Don't want to get dirty. (laughs) It means to lay yourself prostrate before someone of a superior power. It's an act of worship. Now clearly this demon is not worshipping Jesus. He's the enemy. But it seems that when he gets to him, it's either A, he recognises the superiority of Jesus' power, or B, he's being tactful. He's trying to manipulate Jesus because he doesn't want to Jesus to send him out. Notice what the demon says to Jesus. He cries out in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? That term, most high, is frequently used through the Old Testament, but Interestingly, it's only used, well, it's mainly used by non-Israelites in acknowledgement of the God of Israel who is above all other gods. And here the demoniac recognises who Jesus is. It's fascinating that through this, through this whole gospel, the Pharisees don't recognise him. Those who are supposed to be owned don't, uh, his own don't recognise him. The crowds, they can admire and marvel him, but they really don't understand. Even the disciples, they're wondering who this man is. We just found out last week when Jesus calmed the storm that that's in such shock. They're wondering, who is this man in the boat? No human that Jesus encounters really knows who he is. (laughs) The only people that do are the demons, the demoniac. They can see something in the spirit realm that we are completely oblivious to. They know who he is. The humility of Christ to put on flesh, to conceal his glory. 
in human flesh. And yet in the spirit realm, it cannot be missed. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now the irony really starts unfolding here. Firstly, back in that day, it was believed that if you wanted to get mastery over someone, that you would evoke their particular name. So it's quite possible that the demon isn't just here having a meet and greet and saying, oh, hi, Jesus, I know who you are, most high God, nice to meet you. No, no, he's actually trying to take control of this situation and take mastery over Jesus. And then he has the audacity to cry out and and adjure Jesus by the name of God himself to not torment him. I think this is quite funny. This demon who is beset on destroying the very thing that is God's possession, to destroy the divine image of humanity, who has set himself up to be the enemy of God, is now calling on God (laughs) to plead that he will not be tormented. And now we discover the second ironic twist in this little story is that this one who has so tormented this man on the mountains night and day, day and night, to the point where he's self-harming just to try and destroy his own body to get relief, is now begging for mercy. That the tormentor has become this weak, little crying, little insipid, pleading person begging for mercy, yet a moment earlier he was quite happy to torment this man day and night. And it says here in verse 8 that for he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. So this is a response from the demon, from Jesus commanding him out. Now some people find this a bit interesting is that they wonder, if did Jesus fail? Did he not have the power to cast him out? Did he need something else? I don't think so. I'm not really sure what's going on in the unfolding of this story. But there's no point in the story that, my, uh, that Jesus seems in jeopardy of dealing with this, this demoniac. But we do find out, in another twist of irony, that Jesus turns the tables on this demon and says, okay, well, what's your name? So if it's true that the name of a person or spirit would give mastery, then Jesus just turned around and used the very tactic that that this demon has tried to use against Jesus on himself. And the demon has no choice. He just feels, even though this is going to lead to his demise, he says, my name is Legion. For we are many, and now is revealed why this man is so tormented. There's conjecture about how many demons there are. I mean, there's 2,000 pigs on this hillside, as we're about to find out, that they go into. Some people think it refers to a legion that could be numbered between five and 6,000 soldiers in a Roman army. Either way, it's a lot. <laughs> and now we understand why nothing could subdue him. No shackle could bind him down. Why the townsfolk had nothing in response to this man's torment and this man's struggle, his bondage. You'll note that we don't actually see another word from Jesus here. It's just he consents to the demoniac's wishes who begs him now, realising that he doesn't have any choice but to leave the man. He begs him to be not sent out of the country and spots a herd of pigs feeding there on the hillside and begs Jesus, send us into the pigs, let us go there. So Jesus gives consent. 
And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd and numbered about 2,000. You can see the irony just keeps unfolding because here they think they found a refuge, a sanctuary, somewhere where they can go so they can remain in the region. But as soon as they enter the pigs, the these pigs go mad and run out of the region into the sea and drown themselves, leaving these spirits with no bodies to occupy and disembodied. I don't know where they go, but I presume it's the very place they didn't want to go. The herdsmen see this and they go to the city and in the country and they start telling people what has happened. And they come to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. It's extraordinary to think that these town people, who would have known this man, because who knows how long he was tormented for, but things like this, word gets around. Presumably they had been part of the people who had many attempts to try and subdue him. All of a sudden they rock up and they see him sitting there, Clothed, sound mind. Now I would think that I would, if I saw that of someone, I would probably rejoice, I'd be happy. I'd be excited for the guy, this would be amazing, but no, what happens to them? They're afraid. You know, when Jesus steps into your life and does something, it's not always... uh, it's not always welcomed in the way we might think. Your healing or deliverance by the name of Jesus isn't always a welcoming thing for other people because it's not just affecting them anymore. When they're confronted with a power that can do that, they're being challenged because they have to start to question, who is Lord of this life? Who is the one that is the master of this universe? Is it me? Or do I have to start questioning my place in this world, do I have to start answering to him? They were afraid and those who had seen it described to them what had happened to this demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus. That word beg there is, uh, appears four times here. It means beseeched. It's, it's when the devil was talking about begging Jesus not to leave the region. He uses it twice. It's used here again by the people. And they start begging him to leave. Without a word, Jesus gets into the boat and the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. So here we have quite an interesting juxtaposition between the townsfolk who have seen the power and this deliverance of this man begging Jesus to leave and Jesus and this man then turning to Jesus and begging to go with him. So we have the demon begging, we have the townspeople begging, we have the man who was possessed begging. Why is Mark putting this in there? Why is he making a point of it? Because no one can command the Lord to do anything. The Lord is the Lord. You do not tell a king what he or she should do. Queen. A king is a, yes, I realise a king is male and a queen (laughs) is a female. You do not command a Lord. The best you can do is beseech him. This is the Lord. Jesus doesn't say that he is the Lord anywhere else here 
except he infers to it when he tells this man to go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. We are at the submission and the mercy of the Lord, but thanks be to God, our God is a merciful God, a kind God, one who actually you want to submit to because his plans and purposes for your life are far better than any construct you can make of your own. So he says, "Don't you, you, they, he, the man begs to come with him. And he says, he does not, Jesus does not pit him to go, but he says, go to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim it in the Decapolis, how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marvelled. You know, this is the first time that we see Jesus openly allow someone to go and proclaim, well, allow. In other cases, he tells people to be silent, but in this case, he just he encourages it. I find this fascinating that what is the power of the kingdom of God? Well, firstly, it's the fact that they've taken this man who is tormented. Jesus comes to this tormented man who cannot sit still, who is completely without peace, no doubt stripped of all shame, uh, dignity in his shame, probably half naked, cutting himself, just so dehumanised. And then we find after Jesus simple commander dealing with a situation that, that he is sitting there, that he's clothed, and that he's in a sound mind. In other words, Jesus brings him peace and rest. He clothes him. doesn't tell us where the clothes come from, but I think it's put there to tell you that Jesus doesn't just deal with the spiritual aspect. He deals with your dignity. He takes your shame and he clothes you. It says in scriptures that we are clothed with the righteousness of God. He restores your dignity. He removes the shame. The guilt and shame was put upon the cross so you might be restored to dignity. And you are given a sound mind. This is the kingdom of God. I don't know why this happened during the week. I got a bit of an inclination. I think the Lord's still got stuff to tell me about it. But I don't listen to my radio in the car. Very, very rarely. I turned it on twice and I would have listened for about three or four minutes. The first time I turned it on, it's a mid-conversation. It's AM, by the way. It's not FM. (laughs) Showing a little bit of my age there. Uh, But it was a conversation about the concerns in our society in Australia about self-harming. And I... reading this passage and we have a society I didn't even know this was going on but I heard a figure and I don't know if I've got it right I don't know if it was across the population of Australia or if it was referring to demographic but one out of ten will resort to self-harming in their life what torment is a person suffering that they resort to harming themselves because they're trying to set themselves free They're crying out for help. And what I discovered in hearing those few minutes is that we don't have answers. They just want to start talking about it because they know it's a problem, but they don't know what to do. The second time I turned it on, it was about a guy who was talking about depression and mental illness. And again, it seems our society doesn't have answers. Here we are in one of the most wealthiest, supposedly advanced societies in the history of mankind, humankind, And the rise of depression and despair and self-harm and drug addiction 
It defies everything that humans would say should mark our human progress. But the reality is we haven't progressed at all. We've just known how to put on a better facade, to wear better clothes, to house us in better houses, but we actually haven't dealt with anything to do with the heart because we can't. The best we can do for these people who suffer without Jesus is maybe a little bit of cognitive management. It's a big way of saying learning how to train their mind to hopefully just stem the power and the flow of this torment within or medication. But that's actually not that's not really solving their problem. It's not giving them deliverance. It's not giving them freedom. It just means for the rest of their days, here's something to manage it so you don't suffer so much. It numbs them. Now I can stand here and say, I've been on medication for depression. It was for 11 months. And when I started going on it, I knew that at that time, the Lord was giving me permission. I had just come to the end of myself. But I woke up on a day in February 12, 2011. And I heard the Lord say to me, that's enough. And I didn't tell my wife, (laughs) but I stopped taking medication that day. And I know that my soul is free, that the Lord had delivered me, that I don't suffer depression. I know what the spirit of depression is like though. And I can see Him coming now. So through the grace of it all, not only did God deal with my body, the chemical imbalance, whatever that might have been, and my soul, that now joy resides in my heart, but He lets me see the work of the enemy and his devices. And for me, it's like this wisp of a cloud that tries to come over the top and the back. And these days, I can just see it and turn to it and go, hey, That's an old tactic, but I know it. See you later. And I start praising the name of the Lord and lifting Him up. And I let the joy of the Lord be my strength. And I exalt His name because when I exalt His name, He is enthroned. In other words, He displaces those that are trying to lord it over me. And He becomes Lord of my life. And I can rest in that. So no disease, disease, sickness, suffering, mental torment, or anything has the right to have Lord over my life because Jesus is my Lord. And that's who He is for you. This is why you need to renew your mind. This is why you need to absorb yourself in these Scriptures so the Word of God that is in here would be by the power of the Holy Spirit engrafted in you, that it would richly dwell in you because what it does is it produces life and healing and wholeness. And not just for yourself, what happens when you are set free? What happens to your family? Look at this man, he's gone. One testimony. No discipleship, no training, no understanding of the Word. He goes out and when we turn over the page to chapter 7 later on, do you know what's happening when Jesus comes back to that place? People are running there and they're bringing their deaf and their mute. They're bringing those who need healing because they know who the Lord is. Do you know the Lord? What is your testimony? What are we doing with this? I confess that I have struggled at times to share my faith because I had to have to deal with shame in my life. I was worried about what other people would think. But during the last couple of years, God has brought me so far as I don't care anymore because I know the power of the Lord and I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power unto salvation. And there is no other name on this planet, no other name on which, under heaven and earth which men or women will be saved. 
The Lord said, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. He's not... It's un, Christianity, unfortunately, has taken a hit in believing that, wow, well, you're exclusive. You exclude everyone and you don't include everyone. But everyone's like that. You start opening your mouth and you find out when people struggle or challenge you that actually they're being exclusive too. Everyone has their own worldview they want to defend. But Jesus is standing up and saying, if you want salvation, if you want to come to the Father, it's only through me. Well, thank the Lord that God gave us a way. Thank the Lord there is actually a way. I pray that as you look at this, you don't just see a good story and marvel at it, but you recognise that the Lord that lives in you, Jesus Christ, is the same yesterday, today and forever. And He needs to be preached in our society if we want to see change and transformation and set people free. And all you need is a testimony. And isn't that great? Because you have it. You don't need anything else. You can go out in the confidence of the Lord, knowing that when you testify of the one whom you know, who has delivered and set you free, there is power in your testimony. God takes the weak to shame the wise. He takes those who are not to make a foolish things of things that are. You don't have to be much in the world's eyes, but the Lord sees you as significant in His eyes because you're His child and He has put the Spirit of Christ in you and He is abiding in you. The power of this universe, the one who holds all power in His hands is abiding in you. Be astonished. Be amazed. Be terrified. The one who can command the seas and the waves to still abides in your heart. If you don't know the Lord and you don't know Him abiding in your heart, well, we have a prayer team that can pray for you. Don't be shy. Don't be dignified. Because you need life and you need Jesus. There is no answer. There is no answer to the problems of the world. There is no answer to the problem and the cries of your heart. How about we pray?